It's a fact. Life can be hard, and dealing with its challenges is no mean feat. The ability to recover quickly in the face of adversity is known as resilience, and it can be our best ally during times of stress. Welcome to The Resilient Road. In this series, we'll look at human stories of perseverance, exploring what makes someone resilient and what we can all do to help nurture this process in our own lives. My name's Sinead, and I'm joined by my colleagues Brian. Hello. And Elle. Hi there. And we're part of Positive Group, a team that uses psychology and neuroscience to help people make positive changes to improve their health and well-being. I've fallen over unconscious, I've gone under the boat, and I opened my eyes, got smashed in the face by this wave. As I blinked the water away, I saw my boat. And no one heard me, no one saw me, and they just kept sailing. And suddenly, there was nothing but just these monster walls of water bearing down on me and just smashing me over and over and over again. Today, we're going to be looking at the incredible story of Brett Archibald, who survived 28 and a half hours after falling overboard into the Indian Ocean. Elle, Brian, how are you both when it comes to open water? Do you think you would survive? I think it would probably tick most of my uh, morbid dreads synchronously. I mean, I, I, even when I'm swimming in Australia, where my daughter lives, I... I often find myself thinking about Jaws and that uh, theme music and that I'm going to be hit from underneath by a huge, monstrous, great white. So no, it would wake up terrors and, and, and nightmares for me. Elle, what about you? I'm not so good with water, personally. I'm kind of a go-in-the-water-to-your-knees kind of girl, you know, just feet <laughs> only. <laughs> yeah, I agree, Elle. I, I definitely liked the sand firmly between my toes. Um, and I, I suppose what I'm really interested in and curious about is how Brett survived such extreme conditions, both physically and mentally, and what helped him to keep going in those 28 and a half hours in the Indian Ocean. I tried my first surfing at the age of six on a polystyrene foam surfboard that gave you the worst rash on your stomach and arms you could ever, ever imagine, but I just fell in love with it. I feel like I have a very close and incredible connection with God when I'm in the ocean. That's my spiritual journey, you know, it's I find in the ocean I just feel like I'm part of the whole universe. Got a bunch of mates together. They all, all have stayed close since uh, kindergarten, actually, since grade one. All surf, and we made a pact that every two years we would go on this trip. And the Mentawis, as a, as a surf destination, had only recently been discovered then. So that was back in 2002, actually, our first one. So in 2013, I was back from overseas, running my own business. I received an email. Another surf trip is on, who's in? And I just automatically put up my hand and said, I'm in, come hell or high water, I'm going on this trip. 
we knew it all. We'd been a number of times. We didn't need to go with the international boat. We just hire one of the little local boats. We'll be the guides. We know where we want to surf. We didn't do background checks on the boat. We didn't do background checks on the skipper. Book this boat. And off we headed. You know, we put this thing together in three months. And next minute, we were on an airplane on our way to the Mentawis. When we got on board, we were very grumpy and we were very hungry. And Skipper actually said, if he could use the chef, then the boat would leave quick. And I said, just do anything. Let's get some takeouts. And he ordered us three pizzas and <laughs> three calzones that were the worst pizza I've ever eaten in my life. I woke up at 1.30 a.m. with our boat smashing into these waves and I, my bunk was up in the bow, so we were taking the full brunt of, of the waves. I'd never been seasick in my life. I've been on boats and in the ocean since I was six years old, so I wasn't concerned about that. I woke up, said to my cabin mate, geez, this is a bad storm. This is really, really hectic. And I needed to go to the head, to the bathroom, and I climbed up my little ladder to be greeted by my mates vomiting this black pile. And literally the same thing happened to me. I exploded from both sides. I had incredible diarrhea, vomiting. I sat on the loo with my head in this basin with this little hand shower, just washing this black pile and vomiting and vomiting and vomiting. I remember at one stage, there was nothing else to vomit up. And I went into the skipper's cabin and I said, Skippy, what? the hell is going on here? And all he could say, all he knew was my name, Mr. Brett. Mr. Brett, big storm, big storm, boat very slow. And I looked down and it was 2.25 a.m. and we weren't even halfway into the crossing. I knew I needed to get fresh air and I walked outside and I vomited straight away again. And I remember holding on this railing and this pain in the base of my skull and thinking oh my god if I vomit like that again I'm going to black out and that was my last conscious thought I, I felt like I was in a dream which was but it was so real I was in a washing machine I was a kid again my mates had chucked me into this massive big washing machine, thrown some washing powder in, closed the door, and I was tumbling over and over and over with all these white bubbles around me. And I thought, this is such a bizarre dream. It is so real. I can feel the bubbles and everything. And it turned out I'd fallen over unconscious. I'd gone under the boat, and I was just tumbling in this white water. And I opened my eyes, got smashed in the face by this wave. As I blinked the water away, I saw my boat. And I just screamed. I screamed the words, hey, three times. And I, hey. And no one heard me. No one saw me. And they just kept sailing. And suddenly there was nothing but just these monster white walls of water bearing down on me and just smashing me over and over and over again. And I remember just looking skies and saying, God, you have to get me through this because Jamie needs a dad. And I don't care, come hell or high water, I'm not dying today. So we got to work this plan out here. Yeah. 
In that moment, I heard a hyena in the ocean. And I remember thinking, that is the most bizarre sound. How can there be a hyena? And I suddenly, I kind of calmed myself and I listened and I realized that noise was emanating out of my own throat. And my brain just went, buddy, you've got to calm down. I put my hand on my pulse. I have no idea why I did this. And I just closed my eyes and I treaded water. And I counted 1,001, 1,002 at the same time counting my heart rate. And my heart rate was over 180 beats a minute. And my logical brain said, Brett, that is adrenaline. When that adrenaline stops, you're going to sink like a stone to the bottom. You have to calm down. I've done quite a lot of yoga in my life. So I do a lot of calming breathing techniques, close my eyes, just treading water. And I just started doing this yoga mantra, just mm, calm, calm. I quickly checked my pulse again. It was incredible. My heart rate was right down like it normally is, slow, steady beats. And then I just started thinking. I knew straight away, without a shadow of a doubt, my friends would come back for me. And my only thought was to stay alive till they came back. And I started calculating. The skip had said to me, when I said to him, how long have we still got to go? He said, Mr. Brett, maybe 10, maybe 12 hours. And that was at 2.30 a.m. So worst case scenario, it takes them the full 12 hours to get there. They're going to refuel and they will motor back knowing I'm missing. So 14 to 15 hours. That's got to be your goal. That's how long you have to stay alive for. I developed a breaststroke. I just pulled my arms, 1,001, kicked my legs, 1,002. Pull my arms, 1,003, 1,004. And I count to 60. I've done a minute and I do it again and I do it again and I do it again I said you got to take your mind off your situation don't think about what's around you you know it's a given it's not changing I started thinking back to my childhood and I decided to have a conversation with every single person I could remember up until my life today So that was through the whole day. I, it, it was stormy. The storm calmed down to the point where the waves weren't smashing me as much. It was just these massive undulating swells with the wind whipping the tops of them off. So I was going up and down these swells, swimming. I was very fortunate. The sun didn't come out that day. If it had, I literally, I would have baked. I would have been cooked. I mean, the water gets up to 40 degrees at midday there. I had sung every song I could remember the words of. I had spoken to every single person that I could remember, conversations. It's now coming night time, the second night I'm going to be in the darkness and I just remember thinking, I cannot, I cannot be in the dark, I cannot be in the dark, I cannot swim through another night. And suddenly it was pitch black. And I kept falling asleep. You know, like when you have those dreams and you... You're asleep, but you're falling off a cliff or something. Your head snaps. That happened to me a number of times. And, and I remember my brain said to me, Brett, form a company. You've been a CEO. You know how to manage teams. Form a company. And I was talking to myself, what are you talking about? Form a company, Brett, form a company. I said, okay. I named my left nostril Emily, marketing. I named my right nostril Hillary, sales. And I named my mouth Bob production and I started having these board meetings and these team meetings 
And I had all these conversations. And I remember speaking to Bob. I said, Bob, how are you doing? He said, boss, the legs are strong, lungs are strong. Keep your head up, keep the oxygen coming. Production can do it, production can do it. And I remember Emily and Hillary screaming at me. Look at the boss, sleeping on the job again. And I remember saying, girls, I can't swim anymore. Boss, lift your head up. If you're head in the water, no oxygen to the engine, I can't work. And I said, Bob, I can't. I cannot do it anymore. And the girls screamed at me so badly. Lift your effing head, you lazy. <laughs> and I remember lifting my head up and going, oh, I can't do this. And I saw my boat. It was a hallucination. And I mean, I knew it wasn't real. But each of my friends stepped onto the back of this boat, put their hands out. And I'd get to that boat and go to reach it. And I'd wake up and there was nothing there. And then it would happen again and again. And it was at the end of that, after going through all eight of the blokes, the last guy, he, I remember looking at him and I said, you're not, you're not here to rescue me. And he shook his head. And I said, you're here to say goodbye. And he just nodded. And I said goodbye to my wife and my kids. And it was the most peaceful moment. You know, I was so resigned to it. I knew I'd given it everything and I just let go. And I remember sinking down. I was just going down. It was so peaceful. It was so peaceful. The water was warm. I just remember saying, sorry, sorry, but I knew that I'd given it everything. So I, I wasn't beating myself up. I knew I'd fought really hard. But the most interesting thing happened. My ears started hurting. And my brain just went on fire. I remember my brain just screeching, saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Fight, you bugger, fight. Fight for your life. Fight for your family. Fight for your kids. And I swam and I swam and I swam to the surface. And as I burst the surface, it was daytime. And I could see land in the distance. And I remember going, there are going to be thousands of boats on the water today. I'm going to be rescued today. I can swim to that island. I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight for my family. And off I went. Wow, what an incredible story of survival. And even at this point, there's so many things that have happened to him in this time period. It's just phenomenal. It absolutely blows my mind. I think one of the things that struck me from the outset was the kind of sense of classic non-preparedness that we all have when these really big, difficult things happen in life. The things that kind of preoccupy us day to day. So he's like stressed out about being hungry, about there being a storm. He's got food poisoning. He's been really preoccupied by work and he's looking forward to a break and really not prepared for this massive thing that's about to happen. I always feel that in life when something really significant happens, I kind of look back to your previous self and think to myself, what were you worrying about then? You didn't know how easy things were there. And actually now you've got something real to deal with. But I think there are so many interesting parts of this story. And Elle, what are your thoughts on some of the strategies that he's using already? I think the thought processes he goes through are so interesting for me, the thing that really struck me when he first fell into the water and he was just so aware of how he was reacting to his situation. So the fact he was so aware of his breathing, he was really aware he needed to sort of calm himself down. The fact that he then started to sort of practice different breathing techniques that he knew from the yoga sessions he'd 
undertaken. So I'm just not sure in that situation, I don't know how many people would have that control and ability to just stop, reflect, think about their breathing, calm themselves down. Because what you find is a lot of the time when people try and calm themselves down, they stress themselves out further. I completely agree, Elle. And I think what's really reassuring about the way he tells this story is that he's making it clear that these are things that he's learned before. So, you know, in yoga, in his past uh, experiences, he's developed these techniques. And I think that's the really good news story in this is actually if we can learn the things that help, then when we do fall overboard, hopefully we've got stuff there to kind of pull out. Brian, what about you? What was jumping out for you? I think the two things that really struck me when he hit the water was his cognition So his thoughts, how he talks to himself. And the other bit is the physiological aspect that Elle flagged up, you know, with the breathing. One of the fascinating things about your breathing is actually it stimulates your vagus nerve. So if you slow your breathing, if you get your breathing down to about eight or 10 respirations per minute, it stimulates your vagus nerve. And if you stimulate your vagus nerve, you activate your parasympathetic nervous system, which calms you. You basically hack your own central nervous system, and you can start to influence your own physiology. And your body is then sending messages to your brain saying, it's okay, it's all right. One of the things to pick up from what you said there, Brian, is this idea of self-talk. What's interesting about Brett is that most of the time his self-talk is incredibly positive, despite the situation that he finds himself in. And what's really interesting is you see him actually coaching himself. So he's saying to himself, buddy, you've got to calm down. And it's almost as if he's got this kind of sense of a logical brain that's trying to feed him the right kind of information to keep him surviving, to keep him thriving and doing the right things. And he's got this awareness that actually when things get very emotional, when he moves into distress, that actually the thoughts that he's having then are less helpful to him. And one of the things that I find most fascinating, really funny about this story is the forming a company, how he brings in Emily and Bob and Hillary. These characters are saying things to him that are really helpful. So Bob's talking about kind of keeping strong, keeping going on. Emily and Hillary are trying to get him to not fall asleep. That is such an amazing strategy and I think quite a unique one that he's been able to do. But it was interesting the parts of his body that he made, Emily and Hillary and Bob. So it was his nostrils and his mouth. And then thinking about this, because this is front of my mind because I can't swim. Those are the parts that he needs to not get water into to stay alive. So I think actually labeling those specific parts of the body is just a stroke of genius. So he, he's doing some really smart stuff with these strategies as well. He's not just using them, he's using them very, very effectively. Yeah, and I think you really sense this sort of yo-yoing between feeling quite hopeful and optimistic versus feeling slightly hopeless, but then he bounces back really quickly and says, no, I'm going to fight, I'm going to fight. The thoughts are just extraordinary. I mean, I think his ability to decide to decide what he pays attention to, that is an amazing capacity because he actually says the situation is a given so there's this acceptance and and acceptance and commitment is a big area of psychological research that Stephen Hayes has headed up it's a fantastic way to deal with suffering and and pain and upset so I don't think he's gone and studied these subjects but he just has this capacity to use techniques that have an amazing theoretical and proven background I mean they work What do you guys think about the quality of his cognition? So 
I imagine that if I fell overboard, my thought quality wouldn't be very high. I think I would be very preoccupied by just trying to stay alive. But what's quite interesting about Brett is you can see him doing some kind of calculations. You can see him doing some higher order thinking. He's not in a state of kind of absolute panic and chaos where his thoughts are very one dimensional. You can actually see him thinking about, okay, how many hours might it be until the book comes back? What do you think is helping him to do that? Well, I think one of the things that really helps him is this, um, this situation is a given. The, the acceptance, and, and that is extraordinary. And I think that once he's accepted that it is as it is, it's rather like, you know, we do a lot of work around useful worry and useless worry. I mean, worrying about where you are and trying to change, the situation is as it is. And I think his acceptance then allows him to move into this space where there's no point in doing that. So what, what are you using your mind for? And he decides to use his mind for something that is going to help him survive this extraordinary ordeal. When he sort of calculates the number of hours he needs to stay alive for, I think it's quite interesting. He's sort of quite quantitative in general, like he likes the counting. He set himself a goal, and I think that was really motivational for him. So even though it was unfortunately having to swim for 14 hours, probably longer than he was hoping for, it gave him a target. So I think that was probably really fundamental, actually, in terms of him having something that he saw as that glimmer of hope that could happen at that time point. The goal part of it is essential because actually we know that the human brain hates uncertainty. And actually if he's bobbing around and he's got no kind of idea when he'll see another boat again, that's really difficult to take. But if he's able to say, well, actually, I've thought this through and I should see a return at X point, that that becomes quite helpful. It gives him something to, it gives him a level of hope, really. Um, so, yeah, I agree. Very impressive. And I think this stuff is so important, like helping people to understand that there are so many portals that they can actually access and influence to, to change things up for them. And a lot of the work that we do at Positive is about that link between the emotion, the behavior, the thoughts that we have and the physiology. And I think what's lovely about Brett is he's obviously learned how powerful that physiological portal can be to shift things. So Brett has obviously mastered these, which is great. And I think this is the kind of stuff we need to be working in schools to teach children and young people so that they've got these things to take through life with them. Let's get back into Brett's story. Part one was already phenomenal. So really excited to hear what's coming up in part two. Night becomes day. The sea's calm. I'm just convinced my mates are coming back. I've got to keep fighting. I'm swimming along. I go up over the swell and I see something and I go down and I go up again and I see this boat. And it's far away, but it's coming straight at me, bouncing through the waves. And I look at it, it's got a big blue hull our boat was 65 foot boat, so it was a big boat. And they pulled up right next to me. They maybe stopped 100 yards, 150 yards away. I can see my two mate, my big mate, he's standing on the top deck where I'd fallen from. He's holding on the railing, he's looking out. I'm convinced they've stopped because they've seen me. I start laughing. I am shrieking with joy, laughter, and I'm going, what a result. I'm going to get on that boat. We're going to drink a few beers. We're going to talk about this for the rest of our lives. Because I think they've stopped for me. What I didn't know is they had seen a large block of polystyrene, about the size of a human being, 
And that's why they stopped. They thought it was my dead body. So while I thought they were looking at me and had seen me, they weren't looking at me at all. Suddenly, I just saw these two puffs of black smoke billow out the chimneys of the, the exhaust of the, the motor, and they sailed away again. The second time. I thought I'd had a meltdown the first time they sailed away. When they sailed away from the second time, I cannot even tell you, because I knew in that, in that moment that that's it. There, there, there's no more boats coming. They're going to go all the way back to refuel. They'll turn around. By the time they come back again, there's no ways I'm going to be a livestock. As they sailed away, the heavens opened. And I remember getting some water, tasting fresh water and going, oh my God, that is so delicious. And then they were gone. And in that moment, I, I calmed down again. You know, I calmed down. I, I, but then I saw, I knew it was a hallucination. And, I, and it was so weird because it was so real. I saw the Virgin Mary, but she was made of Meccano set. We didn't have Lego as kids. We had Meccano set. And I loved building stuff with Meccano set. And she was like this dark red color with her hands like this, her head tilted. And I, it was so real. And I remember looking at her and saying, God, what are you doing? Is that a sign? Are you sending me a sign? Please just take me. Please just take me. I can't do this anymore. And I started screaming at this vision and suddenly it just disappeared. And next minute, my neck and my shoulders, my ears were just on fire. And I looked around me and it was just the, all these Portuguese men of war floating. And I actually welcomed that moment. I, I embraced it. I knew how I was going to die. My throat was going to seize from being stung by these things. And I was just going to run out of oxygen and sink to the bottom. But as this pain kicked in, it was a definitive moment where my brain just altered and I got so angry and I remember grabbing these things with my fingers and just throwing them left right my adrenaline pumped up my energy pumped up and I felt like I could swim forever I remember swimming and being so tired I don't know it was late in the afternoon and I remember my head being in the water and my wife was tickling my back and she's, she's the best back tickler in the world. And I love my back being tickled. And what was tickling my back was the shoal of tiny little silver fish. They were nibbling my skin all over. Hundreds of them just swimming around me, darting in and out. And my first thought was, you have to catch some of those. eating. You've got to eat. But have you ever tried to catch a fish in a goldfish bowl? I mean, there's no chance. They just were darting everywhere. But at least they had stopped eating the back of my legs. And then this thing hit me. Bang! In my left kidney. And I remember thinking... Oh my God, that's a, a barracuda because they're they prolific over there. They've swum in massive shoals chasing these little fish. And then this thing hit me again and I remember going, that's not a barracuda because it was like the sandpapery and turned me in the water gently. It wasn't, wasn't a hit like to hurt me or anything. It was just, and I remember thinking, I, 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 this, I think this is a shark. I think this is a shark. I got to look and I went under the water and I'm filling around with my eyes open. The, the visibility in the water there is so clear. I saw this shark coming at me and I remember going, oh my God. And it, interestingly, my first thought was a negative one. I lifted my head like this and I said, buddy, please don't bite me in my stomach and I die a painful death. Just hit me here in my throat. Take my head off one bite. And I realized it was a black tip reef shark and I, 
I know enough about their habitat to know that they prefer being around reefs. And I'm in the wide ocean. There's got to be a reef nearby. And then that split second, I decide I don't want him to bite me. I need to catch him. Because I'm going to get hold of him. I'm going to hold on his tail and he is going to swim to his reef. And I'm going, he's going to tow me. I'll worry about him when I get there. But he's got to tow me there. And with a flick of his tail, he was gone. I, I, I cry. I, 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 please come back, please. Because you're not going to understand. By my boat coming back, this was the first thing I'd seen that I, in my mind could save my life. And lo and behold, I see a fishing boat. They stop. I see the guys throwing their hand lines over. And I know I can swim there. And I start swimming there. I get to a point I can hear the guys chatting in Bahasa, laughing. And I know I'm rescued. And I start swimming to this boat and I try and shout. And my tongue is so swollen. I start laughing. I've got a macabre sense of humor. I think, you know, I'm going to get their attention. I'm actually going to swim under as I get there. I'm going to grab the fishing line of one of these kids. And I'm going to pull it. And he's going to think he's got the biggest fish in the mentalities ever. And he's gonna pull me up and he has gonna be this little bloody wrinkled prune faced burnt head. And I'm gonna go, ha, ha, ha. So I'm chuckling as I'm swimming up to this boat and I hear the sound of a tractor starting up. And I, I, I can tell you my brain strings just snapped. There was no more boats. There was nothing to be seen. And whilst my logic side kept saying, Brett, it's early. There are going to be boats everywhere. Just wait. There'll be another one. I just couldn't. And, and my, my negative side just took over. And I said, I'm going to end my life. And I actually just lay on the top of the ocean, just treading water and said all my goodbyes. And then I put my face in the water. I tried to fill my lungs with water. I couldn't. So I swam down. And it was the most beautiful day. The sea was calm. I could see land far away in the distance. And I remember lying on my back, spread eagled, looking up through probably a meter of water. And I just took this massive, massive breath. And I went. <sighs> and again, my brain just went into complete overdrive. What are you doing, you idiot? You've just seen one boat. There are going to be hundreds of boats. Fight for your life, fight for your family. And I just swim to the surface. And I'm coughing, splattering, vomiting water up. And I look up and I saw this black cross right on the horizon. I said, God, what is that? A cross, another hallucination. Shove it where it fits best. What it was, was the mast of this boat called the Baron Joey. I couldn't see the rigging, but I could see the mast and the crosspiece. And they were cruising along towards me. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm going, I'm not getting excited. I'm not getting excited. It's a hallucination. It's not real. And then I saw this guy on the front of the boat and he was pointing left, right, left, right. And I screamed. I just heard this roar come off this boat and the boat swung at me and they came up to me. And I just heard, we've got you, mate. We've got you. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, Oh my God. You're a legend, tomato. He's a board now, skipper. So it took seven hours for my guys to get to where 
where I was with the Australians. And we had an amazing reunion and all of us on the Australian boat, we spent about two hours there. And then about five o'clock, we went across to my boat. Um, a whole lot of people came. We went and anchored in a, in, a, in a secluded cove and a whole lot of other boats came to visit and everybody wanted to come and meet me and talk to me. But I was so knackered. I'd had probably an hour and a half sleep in a crazy bunk bed in a storm in, I think by that stage, it was about 108 hours. So I just collapsed. But I woke up and I checked my phone and it was just after midnight. And I got up to go and get a glass of water. And I got this glass of water and I went to where I fell off from. And I was sitting there and I remember I could see the, the shore glistening there. The water was so beautiful. And I was sitting on this boat drinking this water and I was looking where I fell. And I just, my brain could not work out what it made me for. And I was sitting there and tears were just streaming down my face. And this little arm came out from the skipper's cabin. And it was the skipper of the boat. And he'd seen me sitting there and crying. And he started crying. And we sat, his tears dripping onto my back, my tears dripping onto the deck of the boat. And we just looked at the ocean. We didn't say a word. He just hugged me and hugged me. And I turned to him and I was holding his arm and hugging him. I said, Skippy, you have to put me back in the ocean. <laughs> I still never forget the look of shock and horror in his eyes. He said, Mr. Brett, I know put you in ocean. I never put you in ocean. I tie you to boat. I tie you to boat. I said, Skippy, you have to because the ocean is my happy place. It's my place where I believe I've got a direct line to God. It's my church. And, and I just knew I had to get back in that ocean because my brain was frying so badly. If I never got in that moment, I would never, ever put foot in the ocean again. Fortunately, two of my friends woke up at the same time and I said, guys, I'm going for a paddle. And they said, you, you've got to be kidding. I said, I'm going for a paddle. Please come with me. And we headed out to the surf break and we got there and my two friends jumped overboard with their boards. I just threw my surfboard away and I just dived overboard. And I tell you what, my brain fried. I, I, I felt like springs were just flying out of my head. And I just curled myself into a ball. And I was just sinking slowly down. I remember my brain saying, just calm down, Brett, calm down, calm down. And I sank, sank, sank until I stopped sinking. And I just sat underwater, probably three meters under, just holding my breath until the calmness came over me. And then I swam gently to the top, paddled into the surf break. And I had the best surf I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> Wow, now that we've heard the entirety of Brett's story, it really is phenomenal that he survived it all. It's it's a bit of a miracle, really. One of the things that really struck me from listening to the whole story is the kind of metaphor of the waves. So like the rise and fall of the swell of the ocean. And you see Brett go through this journey where he's got like these peaks and troughs in terms of how well he's coping. And there are times when he's high and he feels like there's going to be lots of boats on the water. I'm absolutely going to get rescued today. Bring it on. And then there's other times where actually there's a real level of darkness. There's an acceptance of all those negative thoughts. He actually says his goodbyes. He's ready for life to be over. And I think that's really important to talk about. When we go through these really difficult times in life, there is a rise and a fall in terms of the intensity at which we experience those negative emotions and those negative feelings. 
And I think knowing that you're going to come through that trough and you're going to go back up again is is a really important thing to hold on to during those times. L, we have to talk about the shark as well. We have to talk about that. That's an insane part of the story. It was unlucky after all that to come into contact with a shark. The interesting thing is when things like you see a shark, that instantly activates our threat circuitry. What's interesting about that with Brett is he's instantly thinking as opposed to being overwhelmed by his emotions. So he thinks, oh, this is this kind of shark. He thinks, oh, that means they'll be near, there might be a reef nearby And that's really interesting. So he's not overwhelmed by anxiety and distress. He's actually thinking about a strategy for for jumping aboard the shark and going back with him to the reef. I think that it's interesting that he's able to even have that clarity of thinking at all, because I think most people would just be in a blind panic, myself included in that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the thought that he's going to catch the shark isn't actually a really realistic one but it's a really helpful one and that's important because actually then that injects a level of hope and that helps kind of shake him out of that place of real despair that he was in before the shark came along and I think one of the things that I'm always interested in when we work with people and and really interested in from Brett's story is how the little tiny things that happen to us when we're in difficult times or situations can make all the difference and some of those things are purposeful and planned some of those things are are the strategies that we use to help get us through and some are just random occurrences and I think that's fascinating in life and I think if we can hold on to when we're in a dark place when we're up against it first of all the things that we can do and then engage with those random acts that happen as well I think that's just a really nice dual approach and the other thing which is a fascinating part of the story for me is the Meccano Mary that appears it's a really important intervention for him Brian do you have any thoughts on this kind of role that faith can play in times of challenge or how it can contribute towards resilience? I think the power of belief is just extraordinary. And I think it links to that concept of placebo and nocebo, things that are going to make you safe and things that are going to harm you. And Brett seems to have a default setting for thinking about how things are going to help him. There's lots of data showing that faith is protective to your psychological health. I think imagery and hallucinations have an incredible veracity. You know, the idea that a picture's worth a thousand words, it's incredibly potent at changing how we feel. And if we can think about people who love us or who we love when we're in times of difficulty, which he does when he first falls in the water, he does with God, and that can give you a sense of strength because it changes your neurobiology, it changes your physiology, it changes your behaviour, it gives you a sense, uh, you know, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of connection. And I think it can drag us back up when we're feeling low. I don't think you have to be religious. You can have that same process through humanistic thought, but it's about meaning and purpose. I think that's so important, that link to the things that we value, the things that give us purpose, what we believe in. And Elle, I know it's not the space for us, but Brett does talk about how the ocean is kind of his church. It's the place where he feels at home. What were your thoughts when he decided to get back into the water? Yeah, I think the whole relationship he has with the ocean actually is really interesting because even though he's recovering from something, he's also really sort of committed to ensuring that he doesn't ruin that relationship he has with the water. It's just a really amazing sort of capacity to even be able to look forward at that point. 
And I know he says again about, oh, and I panicked a bit and I just told myself to calm down. It's great that he's able to do that in that situation. It's a bit like having a massive argument with your partner and then giving them a hug because you want to protect the relationship for the future. I mean, it's just amazing. What's fascinating is that most people who are traumatised, as he would have been with this period of time in the water, dread recollections. They dread anything that reminds them. So to do this immediately shows extraordinary resolve. And I think it links to what we know is extremely helpful, which is emotional processing. Processing emotion is really, really good for us. And the great Carl Jung said, what you resist persists. And actually, the more you try and avoid the distress, the more power you give the distress. And what's been shown in the treatment of PTSD is that you, you get people to process emotion. And by processing emotion, the brain can put it to bed, come to terms with it and move on not processing it can actually have quite a damaging legacy. So I think what he did by getting back in the water actually was fantastic. Uh, and spending all that time thinking about other things, I mean, he, he may have dissociated from some of these experiences which need to be processed. And once he's processed them, then actually that allows you to move on and start to enjoy life again. And so over the course of this podcast, we've been focusing on this intense period of 28 and a half hours in Brett's life and the immediate aftermath of that. But unsurprisingly, Brett has spoken about the fact that he has experienced PTSD symptoms as a result of his experiences. And I think that's something that's really important to call attention to. The difficult things that we encounter in life, the very significant ones, they can leave a scar, they can leave a mark on us. And I think what's important to understand there is again, the strategies that help us to deal with that. So for me, thinking about what I take away from Brett's story, it's all about the toolkit for me. So he's kind of a poster boy for resilience in many ways, and he demonstrates lots of the features which psychologists have identified as central to resilience, such as a positive attitude, optimism, the ability to regulate his emotions and his thoughts. He's able to incorporate biofeedback and relaxation and breathing techniques. Um, and, and for me, it's all about the fact that there's not one approach to being resilient. And actually, this is something that we can all work at. We can all develop our own personal idiosyncratic toolkit. And I think this is something that we should be as committed to building as we are our physical health, our muscles, our immune system, our bank balance. This is something that we need to work at and craft at, and it will make a difference. Elle, what about you? Yeah, so I think for me, it's just interesting to think about how Whilst it was an amazing display of resilience, he did have those ups and downs. And I think just understanding that as being part of the process so that resilience isn't just this upwards journey towards recovery. You do sort of have these ups and downs. And I think at a personal level, it's made me realise that I could show a lot more optimism just outside of situations definitely aren't as threatening as there being a shark where he manages to. And also thinking about how not just his optimism, but also his imagination and his creativity. And actually, you can really use your imagination to be beneficial to you. And then I think lastly, it'd be, it would be sad not to mention the fact that we should all be doing yoga for um, learning breathing techniques in case we ever fall off a boat. So, yeah, that's <laughs> another one to take forward. Thanks, Elle. And what about you, Brian? 
I think the life skills that Brett demonstrated, we really value at Positive. And I think, I think that these are life skills and we can be trained in them and we can learn them. It's not that we can all be Bretts. We can't. I certainly couldn't do what he did. But I think these tools and techniques, if we were, if we were able to give people this sense of agency, because this gives you some influence over life's ups and downs, and we're all going to face ups and downs and difficulties and distress, perhaps not on the magnitude of Brett, but these tools and techniques can help us uh, manage the journey. So to quote an old Californian bumper sticker, No, you Brian. Can't stop... <laughs> you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And I think Brett did, and it was a brilliant story. <laughs> okay, that's allowed. <laughs> Brett's story is incredible and inspiring in so many ways. And it really demonstrates the power of positive self-talk. So if you are having a difficult time, remember to talk to yourself in a kind, compassionate and positive way. If you're interested in learning more about the psychological skills and concepts we talk about in this series, we're now running open positive programs for people from all backgrounds. The program trains you in four core areas of psychological capability and allows you to develop practical skills that will allow you to adapt, thrive and be more resilient in your personal and professional lives. You can find out more by following the link in the description and you can also save 10% with our special Resilient Road discount code RR10. Next time, we'll be hearing from some of the residents of Paradise who survived the California wildfires in 2018. The Resilient Road is brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Sinead Divine French, with Brian Marion and Elle Crush, and featured Brett Archibald. You can find out more about Brett's remarkable story in his book, Alone, Lost Overboard in the Indian Ocean. This episode was produced by Cass Denton, Eli Block, Ivor Manley and Palama Kaufman with sound design by Eli Block. It was mixed by Palama Kaufman and the executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. For more information about Positive Group and the work that we do, visit www.positivegroup.org.